0: If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sends you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, June 15, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News. Now you know, June 15, 2023. This week's news in Boulder County and beyond, by Will Matuska, June 15, 2023. Food Pantries Get Relief. More than $4 million in emergency funding for the state's Food Pantry Assistance Grant, FGAP, will be distributed to 245 organizations statewide, including nine in Boulder County, to support purchasing and distribution The influx of cash comes amid rising food insecurity in Boulder County as food banks and pantries see a record number of visitors. See news, a delicate time, May 11, 2023. High food prices, increased cost of living and the end of pandemic era social support programs have all contributed to growing food shortages. Some food banks are expanding hours and shifting spending from personal care items to food in response. Longmont Food Rescue (LFR) received a grant from FPAG. The organization typically connects community members with food donations or excess food. With the additional support, LFR can prioritize distributing high-quality proteins that are most requested and hardest to find. Naomi Kurland, executive director of LFR, says as emergency benefits end and people struggle with basic needs like paying rent and childcare, quote, having supplemental funds to help people who might no longer be getting SNAP benefits they were relying on is so important, unquote. New study on air pollution from oil and gas. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is looking for public input as it develops a new general per- permit for oil and gas facilities. Quote, as we look to protect the air we breathe here in Colorado, In particular, in overly burdened communities, this is one of the tools that we're developing to make sure we're doing that," unquote, says Michael Ogletree, director of the Air Pollution Control Division. The permit will be informed by a six-month dispersion modeling study, currently in its early stages, that will measure ambient air quality and analyze how pollutants from different sources are dispersed. The Air Pollution Control Division is hosting a public meeting on June 21 to help guide that study and is accepting written feedback through June 30. The public meeting can be at- attained at CDPHE.Colorado.gov APCD outreach. Both the study and general permit will apply to upstream facilities that treat and store oil and gas, which are considered minor air pollution sources by the state. The state estimates that there are more than 10,000 of these facilities in Colorado. The new permit would be a second, more comprehensive option to cover all pieces of equipment at these facilities, typically engines, heaters and flares with one permitting action rather than the current multiple permitting structure. Sergio Guerra, the division's deputy director for stationary sources, says the process should take about a year, but it's too early to finalize an exact date. There will be more opportunities for public input after the study is completed. Ogletree says the feedback process is an effort to incorporate more proactive outreach in the early stages of rulemaking processes. <clears throat> Quote, this is some of the trust building we're working on, he says, while also doing the work that we do day to day around protecting Coloradans from poor air pollution. Unquote. Marshall Fire Cause. After 18 months of investigation, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office on June 8, identified two points of origin for the Marshall Fire. Using burn patterns, video footage, and satellite imagery, investigators found two fires merged on December 30, 2021. One started on a residential property, 5325 El Dorado Springs Drive, owned by the 12 tribes religious cult, where a week old legal burn reignited from high winds. The second fire came from arcing power lines operated by Accel Energy, south of the Marshall Mesa trailhead. The Marshall Fire was the most destructive fire in Colorado's history, destroying 1,084 homes and damaging another 149. The Sheriff's Office said its, quote, extremely thorough, unquote, investigation was assisted by the District Attorney, US Forest Service, Colorado Department of Mining and Reclamation Services, Colorado Bureau of Investigation and several local fire departments and other experts. No criminal charges will be filed, but if new information comes to light, The Sheriff and District Attorney's Office will review it. Fed dollars for fire relief. The Town of Superior is receiving nearly $400,000 in federal funding to repair damages sustained in the Marshall Fire. Funding from both the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the 2023 Consolidated Appropriations Act will help restore stormwater infrastructure. <coughs> quote, this significant federal investment in superior stormwater infrastructure will bolster preparedness in the case of future disasters and improve overall infrastructure in our community. Unquote, Rep- representative Joe Nagoose, who helped champion the two sources of funding, said in a statement to Boulder Weekly, quote, we will continue to fight for a healthy, thriving, and more resilient Colorado," Brandon Richards, Public Works Utility Director for Superior, says the fire damaged stormwater catch basins and ponds, vegetative buffers, and vegetative stabilization. Quote, this infrastructure is critical to protecting neighborhoods, homes, and the environment from stormwater runoff and pollutants that can enter our stormwater system," unquote, Richards said in an email. News, Flow State, Colorado River Basin Experts on Problems and Solutions to Western Water Woes by Will Matuska, June 15, 2023. There isn't a roadmap for the Colorado River Crisis. Lake Mead and Powell Reservoirs, vaults of western water, are historically low. There's more demand and less to go around, leaving the west at a crossroads. The dry reality of the Colorado River contrasts the wet spring in Boulder County, which has created a lush landscape and high creek flow. While the winter's healthy snowpack is flooding streets around the county, It's also predicted to help raise Powell 70 feet by the fall. But a warming climate will make the river's annual flow increasingly inconsistent. At the end of May, all seven Colorado River Basin states agreed on a deal proposed by the three lower basin states, Arizona, California, and Nevada, to conserve at least three million acre feet, MAF, of water by the end of 2026 see news now you know may 25 2023 while some people are pleased any kind of deal was reached many like fort mojave tribe member nora mcdowell call for more work to be done (coughs) quote you guys pretty much screwed up Unquote, McDowell said to a group of Colorado River Basin representatives when asking herself what the river would say if it could speak. McDowell was one of dozens of Colorado River Basin stakeholders, from water policy experts and tribal nations to farmers and agents from the state and federal government who gathered at CU Boulder's 43rd Annual Colorado Law Conference on Natural Resources. Set against the backdrop of law and policy, the two-day conference focused on the basin's biggest issues and what's to come, including how to make more permanent cuts and what steps the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency tasked with divvying up the river's water for more than 40 million people, will take to make those cuts happen Here are three takeaways from the conference. More instability to come. Brad Udall, a water and climate researcher at Colorado State University, set the tone by opening the conference with a clear message. Enjoy this spring's excessive runoff. It's going to be less common in the future. Lakes Powell and Mead were 25% full in April, and have been declining since 1999. These numbers are a consequence of less supply, more demand, and the impacts of climate change, which are all projected to increasingly affect the river moving forward. When the Colorado River Compact, one of the fundamental agreements used to manage the river was signed in 1922, it assumed annual river flow would average 16.4 million acre feet per year, allocating 7.5 MAF to both the upper and lower basins and 1.5 MAF to Mexico under a 1944 treaty. But average flows from 1906 to 2022 were actually 14.6 MAF per year and have gone down to 12.1 MAF since 2000. The Bureau of Reclamation predicts demand on consumptive use of the Colorado River to range between 18.1 MAF and 20.4 MAF by 2060. The change in flow is also attributed to the influence climate change has on a landscape sensitive to warming. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the river's average flow drops nearly 10% with each additional degree Celsius of warming. Cities in Boulder County aren't immune. Many rely on the Colorado River for at least 20% of their water, largely based on junior water rights. Scientists project these conditions to continue. (coughs) Tribes need decision-making power. There are 30 federally recognized tribes that maintain water rights to the river. Many are either still fighting to see those rights recognized, lack infrastructure to use their full allotments, or both. Dwayne Sikakuku is a member of the Hopi tribe in northeastern Arizona. He says they have limited water rights but are trying to utilize treaties and the tribe's history on the land as a way to establish more entitlement. Quote, the United States failure to recognize those documents and treat us as being indigenous to those areas. That's something we are trying to figure out, unquote, he says. Tribal representatives were front and center at the conference, starting with an opening session featuring McDowell's critique of our current and historical relationship with the river. Later that day, A 13th panel of tribal leaders focused on the evolving role tribes play in determining the river's future. Tribal members reiterated that their involvement can't end by sitting at the negotiation table. Many called for more decision-making power in river management negotiations. Exactly what that looks like or how it happens remains unclear. A murky path forward. Experts used the relief from a fruitful spring runoff to focus on fundamental problems and long-term solutions in how we manage the dwindling river. Mark Squillace, a law professor at CU Boulder, offered a few, quote, controversial, unquote, ideas to lower agriculture's water use, 80% of water consumed within the basin in a typical year including voluntary programs that would incentivize, incentivize crop switching, rotational following, and variations of deficit irrigation. Quote, what people need to understand is that the shortages we're seeing on the Colorado River are part is what, of what is most likely a permanent problem. That is, we are using Colorado River water unsustainably, Squillis says and we still have to figure out a way to cut back on consumption, not just for one year or a three-year period, but permanently," But that's easier said than done. Crop switching isn't easy for farmers, and water reductions result in less production, potentially putting less in the pockets of farmers and altering the nation's food supply. Pat O'Toole, president of the Family Farm Alliance, told conference participants, quote, things have changed in a fundamental way, unquote, for farmers because of the volatility of climate change. Other proposed solutions include managing Mead and Powell as one system, apportioning water based on percentages and reshaping society's view of water use from commodity to social compact in the public interest. The Bureau of Reclamation is reviewing the May 22 proposed agreement between all seven states in the basin and will finalize a plan by the end of 2023. In the meantime, Camille Kalimlim-Touton, Commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, announced the start of a multi-year process to establish additional water use cuts on the river post-2026. Opinion, Black in Boulder, Juneteenth, past, present and future by Anthony Gallucci, June 15, 2023. How do we know who we are without knowing where we come from? It is imperative that we not start our African-American story with the acknowledgement of a belated celebration of freedom from bondage in Texas, AKA Juneteenth, 1865, but to instead begin with a Black-centered narrative of the liberated African-American women. This Juneteenth, let us all pause for a moment to honor them. Within a quarter decade of Boulder's founding in 1871, six years after the first Juneteenth celebration, came the city's first Black women The early African-American women pioneers to Boulder were politically engaged, skilled mothers, and hardworking residents who had migrated with their recent freedoms from the Eastern States. Unfortunately, they were often discriminated against by some of their white community members who had the emotional and mental disorders known today as racism and sexism. Due in part to the intersectional racism and sexism disorder, which plagued some non-BIPOC people at the time, black women experienced many unnecessary challenges to their ability to find security and sustainable housing, employment, and basic sustenance in Boulder. It was not until the great African American migration of the 1950s and 60s that the black population of Boulder would increase giving the white community another other opportunity to embrace our excellence. At that time, African-American families like the Georgia Avery household created the Boulder NAACP chapter, which along with other efforts in the region began to create an atmosphere in the 1970s and 80s in which black women Boulderites were empowered to advocate for racial and gender rights. Two of the many exceptional black women that lived in Boulder at the time were Wilma Webb, who served as the first African-American woman elected to the Colorado State Legislature, 1980 to 1993, and Alice Faye Duncan, an author, advocate, and educator who is an active member of the American Library Association, the National Education Association, and the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Into the 21st century, African American women have made significant contributions to Boulder in areas such as politics, education, business, advocacy, and the arts, A few of the many who are manifesting beauty in the Boulder Metro area today are Ann Cooper, a prominent real estate broker, community stakeholder, and black elder who has lived in the city since the mid 1980s. Junie Joseph, an attorney who served on the Boulder City Council 2019 to 2023, and is currently serving as a legislature in the Colorado House of Representatives for the 10th district. Yvette Rollins, the founder of YJR Management and Events, an influencer, community advocate, and organizer. Regina Smith, who worked to liberate Naropa University as the vice president of Mission, Culture, and Inclusive Community, and through black womanist futurism. Katrina Miller, owner of Blackat video productions and co-director of the film, This is Not Who We Are, which provided a necessary critique of Boulder's racist history, behaviors, and current political policies. Kiesha Lowry, a mentor and advocate raising her family in Boulder for the past decade. She has worked with children and adults to assist in overcoming substance use disorders with various agencies in Boulder County. The participation and voices of these black women, and many more, are indicative of the health of our black community in Boulder. Quote, The role of black women in Boulder, like in any community, can vary and encompass a wide range of roles and contributions. Unquote. Says Kiesha Lowry, whose children grew up in the Boulder Valley School District. Quote, it is important to recognize that black women's experiences are diverse and their roles can be shaped by factors such as individual interests, educational attainment, socioeconomic status, and community involvement." Unquote. Black women in Boulder can, Lowry says, quote, enlarge the local economy and community by bringing their knowledge and abilities to bear in their specialized sectors. They might participate in community building projects, social justice campaigns, and grassroots organizations that promote equity, inclusion, and constructive change. They may serve as mentors, instructors, or administrators as they help mold and direct the next generation." Lowry pointed to a number of organizations and initiatives that support black women in their personal and professional endeavors. The Boulder County chapter of the NAACP, the CU Black Women's Alliance, the Safe House for Progressive Alliance, SPAN, Whole Connection and Mental Health Partners. Quote, the future of black womanness is comprehensive, Lowry says, Increased representation and leadership are important facets, as well as intersectional and holistic approaches to help Black women facing unique and complex challenges of life in Boulder. More expression of culture and appreciation of Black contributions will highlight the variety of Black womanness and foster inclusion. Another facet of the future of Black womanness in Boulder is to build a system where Black women can collaborate and create safe spaces for Black women to be welcome, engage, and thrive, specifically beginning around adolescence. Within these safe spaces, the importance of celebrating culture should be the primary goal, The future is full of optimism. The Boulder community is blessed to receive the gifts of black women living here and from this day forward is called upon to immediately see and treat African-American women with the utmost respect. The mothers of this iteration of body and to all bodies before us deserve nothing less. Quote, the future of black womanhood will be shaped by continual collaborations with Boulder's black community and investments in our Black future from the community at large," Lawry says. We are here, proud, and not going away because we know that our Black families deserve to exist, maintain, succeed, and help grow this beautiful community," unquote. Anthony Gallucci is a dad, author, activist, and professor he is currently teaching at Naropa University and finishing his doctoral work in psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, researching masculinity from an Afrocentric epistemological lens. This opinion does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Entertainment, comedy, comic relief. Boulder Comedy Festival Returns for Another Year of Laughs by Lauren Hill, June 15, 2023. (coughs) When Boulder Comedy Festival began in 2021, a year after the pandemic derailed its planned debut, the city was ready to laugh. So ready, in fact, that festival founder and comedian, Zoe Rogers couldn't even finish thanking the audience for coming before she was cut off by a shouted chorus in response, Quote, no, thank you, unquote. Now Boulder Comedy Festival is back for its third year, reflecting the strength of the emerging front range comedy scene. With new comedy clubs and brewery based open mic nights cropping up, from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs, it's a much different environment for local stand-ups than it was just a few years ago. But don't expect the upcoming five-day event taking place June 21 through 25 and featuring nearly 50 comedians from Boulder and across the country at locations like the Dairy Arts Center and Boco Cider to look like every other comedy showcase in the region. Quote, I want to put to bed that ridiculous idea that a comic looks like one particular person, Rogers says, because they don't. That belongs to everyone, Rogers' desire to expand her community's perception of comedy stemmed from her frustration with bookers who never seemed to have enough women on shows. Then she moved from Los Angeles to Boulder where white people make up nearly 90% of the population and felt the lack of diversity in more ways than one. Quote, I wouldn't want to sit through a show that didn't represent me at all. So I imagine everybody feels that way, Rogers says. So let's make sure everybody feels represented, unquote. By starting Boulder Comedy Festival, Rogers decided to spark the change she wanted to see in the culture of comedy. To that end, Denver-raised comic, Chanel Hughes says the unguarded self-expression required for standup is the perfect vessel to deliver a new set of perspectives to a willing audience. Quote, as comedians, that's what we bring. A lot of observations, perspectives, and points of view just to make you think or relate to somebody who doesn't look like you, says Hughes, who has two sets scheduled during this year's festival. I think sometimes that's an eye-opening experience within comedy. Sometimes as humans, we think we're so different, but we're really similar," Comedy is for everyone, but for a message to land, it needs an audience ready to accept it. Rogers believes Boulder is that audience with ears ready to hear and voices to laugh along with the range of comics comics she's curated for this year's comedy blowout. Quote, they're open to it because they are very open, crunchy, progressive people, Rogers says. No one here is unaware of the lack of diversity, so they're happy to do things to sort of make things better. Unquote. Rogers has always been an advocate for diversity in comedy and a supporter of her friends in the scene. One of these friends is Austin-based comedian, Chris Bryant, performing two sets this year at The Dairy, who is fresh off the release of their new comedy special, Gender Reveal Party. Bryant says the special, much of which discusses the comics relationship to their gender identity and neurodivergency, has been algorithmically censored online after internet trolls reported it for bogus charges ranging from impersonating a politician to promoting mail order brides. Quote, I shouldn't be, but I'm used to trolls on the internet, Bryant says. What I'm not used to is completely being silenced, unquote. Rogers saw Bryant's comedy being muffled by online hate and suggested they come to Boulder to advertise their special, knowing it would be met with the love she feels it deserves. Quote, At first, Bryant was like, I'm so sorry, this is bringing weird energy to your festival. And I said, I love your album. I think you should bring it. And I think you should sell it, Rogers says. So that's sort of what we're about, not letting people get censored. Unquote. Rogers says she's felt tons of support from her community in keeping the festival afloat, but support is a two-way street. Just ask Longmont-based comedian Ricky Ramos, who jumped to help Rogers with the festival when it started. His material is gritty. Ramos, who tells his story through comedy, spent much of his life in gangs and in and out of the prison system, and he was always struck by her unwavering support. Quote She's a comics comic. She's there to support her people, Ramos says. Comedy is subjective, but comedy is for everyone. And the diversity she brings to the table allows me to be comfortable in any kind of space she showcases. On the bill, Boulder Comedy Festival, various locations and times, June 21 through 25. Tickets are available at BoulderComedyFestival.com. Bonus, what's so funny about Boulder? Four BCF comics on the lighter side of the People's Republic. Zoe Rogers, Quote, comics will come in and say, can I, have, can I say this, can I say that? And I say, absolutely, but you can't make any jokes about not liking dogs. I had my cat get eaten by a coyote. I had mentioned that on stage and people were like, very pro-coyote. It was a very strange moment. I'm trying to read you, are you pro-coyote? Are you anti-cat? Like, do you understand? The coyote ate the cat, right? And the crowd was like, oh, they're beautiful animals. Also, they do a lot of supportive heckling, which I think is really funny. Typically in LA and New York, When somebody heckles you, it's, ugh, shut up. But here it's always like, yes, yes, live your truth. Step into your power, unquote. Ricky Ramos, quote, the biggest contributor to my storytelling of Boulder is the white privilege here. It is, get out of my way. I'm doing what I'm doing. You do not have enough money in your pocket to be in my lane. And it's just like, wow, okay, well, good day to you, too, sir. Josh John Novosad, quote, there's a law that you cannot graze your yama on public land in Boulder. I'm like, how did that become a law? My joke is I had a heart to heart talk with my yama because I couldn't afford to feed him anymore. So I was like, hey, you're free, unquote. Quote, there's another law that you cannot own a dog in Boulder, you're the guardian of the dog. And again, I think that's a really nice thought, but I'm pretty sure my dog isn't worried about that. When he comes up to me and looks at me, he's not thinking, does this guy own me or is he my guardian? So you know, that kind of stuff I think is a little bit silly. Chanel Hughes, quote, I joke about Boulder a lot. I'm like, Boulder, you're so rich. Why won't you come to our shows and laugh? I love seeing rich people laugh they laugh with their mouth wide open. You can see their molars. I don't even have molars. Like, let me see. Boulder gets a little stiff. They definitely get stiff on race jokes and things of that nature. Comedians of color poke a lot of fun and we talk about race relations because it's our reality. I think that's the funniest thing about Boulder. I'll do a cute little joke to get you in and then I start talking my shit and they're like, Hey, you're funny and you're smart, you know? So even if they're not laughing, they're listening. And I think that's just as important," unquote. Entertainment, stage, body and soul. The queen of R&B gets her due in the world premiere of Miss Rhythm, The Legend of Ruth Brown by Tony Tresca, June 15, 2023. Even if you don't recognize Ruth Brown's name, chances are you know her voice. Dubbed the queen of R&B, the legendary singer incorporated pop music styling into traditional rhythm and blues music across numerous chart-topping singles like, Mama, He Treats Your Daughter Mean, Teardrops From My Eyes, and Five, 10, 15 Hours. Although Brown died in 2006, Her music lives on in the world premiere of Miss Rhythm, The Legend of Ruth Brown at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, DCPA through October 15. The cabaret show uses songs from Brown's illustrious catalog to trace her quick rise to fame from modest beginnings in Portsmouth, Virginia. Based on the 1996 book, Miss Rhythm, the autobiography of Ruth Brown, Rhythm and Blues Legend, by Brown and Andrew Yule, the show was co-created by local artists, Cheryl McCallum, who stars as Brown and music director, David Niels. Even for audience members unfamiliar with the specifics of Brown's life, the script ensures that you understand at least the SparkNotes version. Although the majority of the evening is spent blasting through 17 songs from her deep discography, the musician's history is loosely recounted between songs in a series of brief monologues delivered by McCallum, interactions with the five piece live jazz band and video clips of the real life Brown sharing details from her past. Directed by Kenny Moten and staged in the DCPA's cozy nightclub-style Garner Galleria Theater, *Miss rhythm has the atmosphere of a live concert. Unlike other biographical jukebox musicals that focus on bringing the artist's stories to life on stage, this experience is primarily a vehicle for Brown's toe-tapping tunes and McCallum's transfixing talent. Instead of trying to perfect an impersonation of the musician, the creative team made the wise choice to have McCallum's portrayal of the title role function as a meta theatrical embodiment of Brown. This decision allows McCallum to interact with the audience and demonstrate her skills as a dynamic storyteller. Each tale is interwoven with a thoughtfully curated song, allowing her to delve even further into the character. Moten skillfully stages these musical moments against the dreamy scenic design of Lisa M. Orzalek, who transforms the Garner Galleria into a swanky swing band setup. The show's balanced technical elements are completed by the luscious lighting from Charles R. McLeod, Sound design by Max Silverman, subtle costuming by Megan Anderson Doyle, and projections by Al Armstrong. Whether you're a diehard fan of Brown or a curious newcomer, Miss Rhythm's 75-minute runtime provides a succinct showcase of the artist's body and soul through the music that made her famous. The must-see show is a long overdue tribute to Brown's iconic music that lingers long after the curtain falls. On stage, Miss Rhythm, The Legend of Ruth Brown by Cheryl McCallum and David Nels, various times through October 15, the Garner Galleria Theater, 1101 13th Street in Denver. You can get tickets at denvercenter.org Cuisine, Sibling Rivalry. Boulder County's roomiest, most family friendly farmers market is actually in Longmont by John Lendorf, June 15, 2023. Standing at his booth, handing out tasty samples, a vendor at the Longmont farmer's market leans forward and confides conspiratorially, quote, Actually, Longmont is a better market experience than Boulder, he says. Here, everything's easier for the vendors and the shoppers. There's much more room so you can breathe. People seem a little nicer, unquote. The farmer didn't want to be identified because he also happily sells at the Boulder Farmer's Market. Perhaps he was also ambivalent about the secret being discovered. Despite being only 15 minutes or so from Boulder, the long-running Longmont Farmers Market is an afterthought for most local shoppers. Ask folks, and they assume since both markets are operated by the same organization, Longmont is just the Boulder Market's less hip sibling. Quote, Longmont is very different from Boulder, unquote, says Ann Matson, manager of the Longmont Farmers Market, quote, This is a classic community market where people bring families, kids, friends and visiting relatives. A lot of them spend a few hours here and have a picnic." Early on a recent Saturday in Longmont, bread and pastry lovers lined up at Styria Bakery, XLVII's Bakery, Hinman Pie and Izio Artisan Bakery. These baked goodies were made to pair with local cheeses from Moon Hill Dairy, which makes a fine camembert, new kid at the market, Westcliff Cheese Company, goat, chevre, and feta, hot cheese curds, Five Freedoms Dairy, and occasionally Colorado farmhouse cheese. Quote, Longmont serves a different population. This location is more accessible for seniors and those with disabilities. Unquote, Matson says. On any given Saturday, about 75 vendors are selling everything from wool and mushrooms to tempeh, corn chips, and granola. Many of the stands are unique to the Longmont event, including a rotation of guest vendors. As in Boulder, the Longmont market is a local grower-first focused enterprise. Hence, you won't find any pineapples here. The site at the Boulder County Fairgrounds was built to host the Longmont Farmers Market. Two shopping walkways intersect at a main crossroads that features shade, seating, live music, and naturally hula hooping near the food court. The spacious layout means that this market never seems claustrophobic, even when abuzz with families. Quote, the advantage here is you really get to talk to the farmers about what they grow and how to serve it, Matson says. The growers come for the community as much as the shoppers, unquote. Arriving at the Longmont Farmers Market early on a sun, sunny Saturday morning, it's obvious this is a separate reality. First, a huge parking lot right next to the vendors is a big convenience factor for the vast majority of locals who shop using their cars. Yes, the location is friendly to bikers, pedestrians, and mass transit too. The expanding grower roster includes familiar names like Off Beat, Aspen Moon, Black Cat, and Miller Farms, as well as Longmont-only sellers like Honeyacres Greenhouse and Kelly Jean's Microgreens. <clears throat> One familiar face in Longmont is Karim Amirfati, owner of Altan Alma Farm, who formerly operated Cafe Rumi on North Boulder in Broad, North Broadway in Boulder. His original farm in Louisville was burned in the Marshall Fire, but he now grows at a rented field. He offers an unusual array of therapeutic herb plants and products, including Sichuan button, a sense dazzling edible flower. He also grows ashwagandha and gotu kola plants, an expert arborist, Emma Farthy sells ready to plant trees he grafted. Longmont also showcases a lot of locally raised eggs and meats from Rough and Ready Farm, Platteville's Blue Sky Farm and Boulder Better Wagyu, which sells fat marbled ribeye steaks. Discovered the joy of artisan beef jerky sticks at Boulder Beef. The vendor lineup changes through the season as the state's fruit crop comes in and the biggies, corn, tomatoes, and melons are ripe in the hot summer fields. One wing of the Longmont farmer's market is a full food court with unique offerings from Baba and Pops Pierogi, Rev's Ribs, La Esmeralda, Momo House, and more. Adult beverages are available nearby from Longmont's St. Vrain Cidery and Abbott and Wallace Distilling. Is the Longmont market better than its Boulder sister? Call it a case of farmer's market sibling rivalry, but it really depends on how you like your local farm-focused shopping experience, urban or slightly more rural. Quote, the first time that people from Boulder shop at this market, they always say, I didn't know this was here. This is different, unquote, Matson says. One compelling reason to visit the Longmont Farmers Market is the opportunity to sample the spectacular fare at Rising Tiger, chef Devin Keo-Prafe's Asian-American catering booth. It's hard not to gush about his scallion pancake breakfast wraps. He fills savory rice flour crepes with eggs, meat, or smoked tofu, and cheese with a smear of chili garlic crisp. The booth also dishes a rare sweet treat, warm fish-shaped taiyaki rice waffles stuffed with creamy custard filling. It's perfectly paired with a cup from Longmont Roasted Fair Isle Coffee. Cuisine, The Dandelion Challenge. Rich in vitamins and fiber, It's time to stop dismissing this weed by Ari Leveaux, June 15, 2023. I make a point to eat a dandelion every day. The whole plant is edible from the sunny top to the deep tap root and all the stem, stalk, and leaf in between. And there are ways to eat it that won't contort your face with bitterness. It's one of the most all-around healthy foods you can eat rich in vitamins, fiber, and many other nutrients. The flowers, fried in butter, oil, or bacon grease, taste like extra floral artichokes. The buds have a meaty chewiness and slight sweetness, with a taste that's a lot like a dandelion flower smells. The hollow flower stalks make great cocktail straws, bitters included. The roots can be roasted until chewy, crunchy, or brown. Native to Northern Europe, dandelions specialize in colonizing disturbed areas, which humans specialize in creating. They have followed humans and their disturbances around the world, colonizing every continent except Antarctica. And while often labeled as weeds, they don't hang out where they don't belong. In this old growth forest patch near my house, where most of the plants and animals living there or passing through are native species and the ecosystem is roughly intact, there are no dandelions except along the one trail through the grove, and you don't want to eat those. The best dandelion habitat is unsprayed, overgrown lawn, which is about as disturbed as a piece of land could get. Whether it's the root, leaf, stalk, or flower you seek, harvest them as cleanly as possible, bringing as little dirt home as possible. In winter, it will be more challenging to eat dandelions daily. It will involve more tea and roots if you can jump on them before the plant flowers. That stuff needs to be gathered now, in these days of summertime. Eat them fresh and stock some up for later. Blanch and freeze. Dry the leaves and roots. Add flowers to a jar of pickled cucumbers for some quick pickled buds. They will close up, but get chewy and tangy. Add leaves to sardine salad. Make dandelion-infused oil, dandelion wine, dandelion barbecue, curry, potato salad, smoothies, olives, and cheese in a rolled up leaf. A tapestry of daring dandelion tapas. Here are some do-it-yourself dandelion recipes, one for every day of the week. Sunday, fried flowers. In a cast iron or omelet pan, fry flowers with the yellow sides in butter, oil, or break bacon grease with garlic, salt, pepper, and whatever else you can think of. Monday, raw leaves with grapefruit. Wash, dry, and chop a bunch of raw leaves. Add onion and minced or mashed garlic. Dress with olive oil and lemon juice and season with salt or copious amounts of feta, or both, toss with grapefruit. Tuesday, radicchia, the famous Greek dandelion dish. Blanch leaves in salted boiling water for about 60 seconds. Transfer immediately to cold water to chill. Then drain, squeeze, and chop the dandelion. Dress with lemon juice, salt, and olive oil. Wednesday, Namul. This is a Korean style of preparing dandelions. Blanch leaves in salted boiling water for a minute, then dress with a sauce made of minced garlic, sesame oil, cider vinegar, chili powder, a pinch of sugar, and fish sauce or anchovy paste, and salt to taste. Thursday, roasted roots. Excavate the root as gently as you can, loosening it as deeply as possible, ideally before it has flowered, after which the root can get woody. Scrub it clean and chop it, then roast slowly at 275 degrees until dark brown. Serve with salt, honey, chocolate, or as a coffee-like tea. Friday, stocking bitter bubbles. Go into the yard and pick the longest dandelion flower stalks you can. Pop off the flowers, mix with gin and juice or tonic, insert straw, serve. Saturday, ramen. Tampopo means dandelion in Japanese. It's also the name of a hapless maker of mediocre ramen in the masterful Japanese comedy of the same name from 1985. The heroes attempt to teach her how to make ramen, but can't. Drama and hilarity ensue. I only found out about it when I searched for dandelion ramen to see if I invented it. But no, I am not the first person to add dandelion to a high-end ramen, like Nongshim or Sapporo Ichiban brands, with an egg cracked toward the end. Use any part of the plant, including leaves, even roots, As long as it's clean, add it to the pot. Features, weed between the lines, the biggest week. Psychedelic Science Conference 2023 comes to Colorado's capital by Will Brenza, June 15, 2023. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, is one of the foremost organizations working to develop medical, legal, and cultural contexts for people using psychedelics and marijuana. It funds more research on the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics than almost any other nonprofit. And this month from June 19 to 23, MAPS is coming to Denver to host a historic gathering of the global psychedelic community, the fourth Psychedelic Science Conference. Their webpage is psychedelicscience.org. MAPS is calling it, quote, the biggest week in the psychedelic renaissance, unquote. There will be speakers, workshops, and a lot of time to mingle with some of the biggest names in the world of psychedelic science, culture, and community. And this event is far from annual. So if it sparks your interest, you should register sooner rather than later. The first psychedelic conference was in 2010 at the Holiday Inn Hotel in San Jose, California, co-hosted by MAPS, the Hefter Research Institute, the Beckley Foundation, and the Council on Spiritual Practices. Some 800 attendees showed up from around the world to take accredited courses for physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, and social workers. Then there was the second Psychedelic Science Conference in 2013, which drew around 2,000 attendees, and the third in 2017 drew 3,000. Interest in this sphere of research and exploration is clearly growing, and while COVID may have extended the break between the 2017 Psychedelic Science Conference and this year's event in Denver, it couldn't stop the momentum behind this movement. This year's conference at the Colorado Convention Center is anticipating well over 10,000 attendees. And it is a veritable who's who of the psychedelic world. Michael Pollan, author of How to Change Your Mind and founder of the Berkeley Center for Science of Psychedelics will be there along with renowned mycologist Paul Stamets NFL quarterback and psychedelic proponent, Aaron Rodgers, Columbia University professor of psychology, Carl Hart, and many other recognizable names. More than 300 speakers will present at the conference on the convention center's seven stages. They range in backgrounds from professors and researchers to authors, activists, artists, law enforcement therapists, Olympic athletes, lawyers, journalists, educators, and more. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. More information is available on their website. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303- 786-7777 Seven eight six seven 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 seven.